This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. It's Wednesday, December 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we've got David Kretzman from Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, and Jim Mueller from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Options, and Supernova as well. Guys, welcome. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. How are you? Guys, I'm good. We're going to talk some European luxury, some Dave and & Busters, and a surprising holiday bonus-type story. We're talking about you, Toys R Us. We're coming. We're coming after you. Oh, that's a show. That's a show. But let's begin with a battle of the tech titans. Google is pulling YouTube from some Amazon devices in retaliation for Amazon refusing to sell some Google products. Google also saying that it plans to block YouTube on Amazon's Fire TV beginning January 1st. Jim, sounds like someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, it sounds like two children fighting on a playground. But the thing is, there's a lot of money at stake in in what these guys are fighting over. Uh, As you said, Amazon doesn't sell various Google things, the Chromecast. I tried looking for one just the other day, and they don't have it. Uh, Google Home Smart Speaker as well. And Amazon has bluntly told Google, hey, we're not going to sell these things for you. Oh, also, uh, Amazon Prime Video is not available on the Chromecast, and they stop. Amazon also stopped selling stuff from Nest, which is one of Alphabet's other sections. In response, Google is now saying, "Well, because you're not doing what uh, we want you to do, <laughs> we're going to pull, we're going to block uh, YouTube on your devices." And we're talking, I believe, we're talking the streaming app over the uh, Amazon's Echo Show and Fire TV uh, devices. Uh, Amazon is sending people to the YouTube.com website, but Google also says that's not part of the part of the deal, guys. And so uh, they're saying. Hey, we're, we're going to block you if you're going to block us. So, so how does this how does this shake out? Because YouTube, that's some pretty powerful leverage. People love them some YouTube. David, how do you think this shakes out? Yeah, I think this hurts Amazon more than it hurts Google. Uh, although Amazon does have a bit of clout when you're talking about these streaming devices, they're the number two player behind Roku. So, 16% of households with Wi-Fi have a Roku. 14% have a Fire TV. Then 8% Chromecast. 6% Apple TV. So, Amazon does have some sway there. But how many people are only going to have a Fire TV now that they can't access YouTube anymore? I think. People would rather spend the $30 for a Chromecast or buy a Roku so they can access YouTube and all their other favorite apps, uh, rather than just sticking with the Fire TV. So I think this move probably probably will hurt Amazon a little bit more. It'll get under their skin. Uh, they'll probably have to. I, I would imagine they'd try to negotiate to get YouTube back because that is just such a dominant video platform, certainly in the top three uh, when, when you're talking about these streaming platforms out there. And it's also interesting to take a step back and and look at the the different strategies that we're seeing here. Because for a long time, Google and Amazon had horizontal strategies. They wanted to be as many places as possible. But you're seeing both companies try to become a little bit more vertical with their strategy and keep consumers locked into the their own ecosystems, kind of following Apple's strategy uh, for a long time. And I think that's 
going to be a tough, uh, a tough position to balance because obviously with Google Search, you wanted Search to be on as many devices as possible, and up till now, you wanted YouTube to be as accessible to people as possible. So pulling that back. That that could end up, uh, they, they, Google could end up shooting themselves in their own foot if they if they limit YouTube on on many other devices. So I, I would expect that Google won't go down this route very often. But my, my guess would be that this is just more of a little short term jab at Amazon to say, be careful because we we can we can play too. The frustrating thing about this is that the two are also the, uh, some of each other's other's biggest customers as well. I mean, Amazon advertises a lot on Google, and Google uses Amazon Web Services uh, for a lot of its uh, own storage needs. So there's an interesting dynamic. Parts of them are fighting with with each other, while parts of them are also doing business very well with each other. We should come up with a word for if you're friends, but also enemies. Jeez, uh, like Coopetition. Coopetition. Frenemies. 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 Oh, oh. Oh. Come oh, on. Work with me. Work oh. with me. Sorry, Matt. Sorry. It's yeah. early. It's yeah. still We're early. warming up. Okay, so I, I want to, um, as we wrap this up, I want to ask about that frenemy question. Um, when you look at the big tech companies, and um, let's confine this question to Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google or Alphabet, who do you think is on the most kind of direct collision course, and who do you think has the biggest moat when you look at those four? Because there is this frenemy dynamic. They work together on some things, they compete on other things. Yeah, I, I would say Google and Amazon are probably the ones that are going head to head. The most because you're seeing Amazon flexing its muscles bit by bit more with advertising, which is obviously Google's bread and butter. Because Amazon has so many people going straight to the site when they're searching for a product, uh, and that that opens the door for advertising dollars uh, rather than people going to Google to search for a product and then going to the ad that Amazon bought on Google. Uh, as far as the moat there, man, I, I don't know. I, I think Amazon. Certainly has a strong position because they have such a. I mean, they they don't disclose the number of Prime subscribers, but having that subscription base of people who are for for the most part locked into that Prime ecosystem with Amazon and just seems like rely on Amazon a little bit more for shopping and all these other you know wide array of apps and services that Amazon is just throwing into that ecosystem. I think that's a tough a tough thing to to top. Now I would have said uh, Google and Facebook because they're both trying to keep customers on their sites uh, as much as possible. Facebook with all the uh, uh, the pages and and uh, talking to each other. Google with uh, things like YouTube and, and stuff like that, so that they can serve up advertisements to those people. And in that case, I think Google has the better moat because it's as you as you say, it's a, the search engine. I mean, go, uh, to Google it is now a verb in in English use, and so which. Really uh, implies that that's the company for uh, for search. Let's go overseas to Europe. A big win for luxury brands in Europe on Wednesday. The European Court of Justice ruled that luxury cosmetics company Cody had not broken EU rules when Cody blocked its German distributor from using Amazon and other online retailers. Cody's brands include Calvin Klein and CoverGirl. Jim. This seems like a big deal when you can basically say, hey, not so fast to your distributors who want to put your wares on Amazon. Well, this raises an interesting question about dynamics. I mean, the luxury brand, one of their biggest selling points is that, hey, we're luxury, we're exclusive, we're special. We don't want to be paired with, in the consumer's mind, knockoff products or cheap products. And so. Cody was arguing that uh, perfumery accent, I think that's the way to pronounce Ooh, it. Nice. Uh, Very the, nice. That's the German distributor, <laughs> uh, even though it sounds French in name. Uh, 
they were sell, uh, selling products that they bought from Cody on Amazon. And Amazon, or I'm sorry, on Amazon, but Cody said that, hey, hey, that's that's uh, ruining our uh, our deal and our, our uh, cachet, our, our specialness. And so uh, other luxury brands are hailing this and saying, hey, this is a big thing. But on the other hand, consumers might not be as uh, as benefited because they don't see the the comparison of hey this looks these these handbags for instance or this perfume or this uh, makeup uh, they look the same they act the same how come I'm paying extra for the luxury brand just because it's uh, Calvin Klein um, rather than Joe Schmo I mean well of course <laughs> I don't think any woman would wear Joe Schmo uh, makeup but uh, you know. Maybe. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Let, uh, yeah, probably safe. We don't. Yeah, yeah, we don't go yeah, there. Yeah, we're guys here. Let, let's leave that alone. Uh, but it also plays into uh, how how much consumers are willing to pay, and are they willing to pay up for the luxury and for the uh, the the ability to walk down the street with a really expensive handbag, like those sixty thousand dollar Birkin bags. Um, so. There's an interesting dynamic. The other dynamic that's in play here is that Europe is not the U.S. So Cody is a U.S. company, and in the U.S. there's this uh, first sale doctrine where once you sell something, you have no control over what is done with it. It could be rented out, which is what Netflix did with their DVDs and the movies, or it could be sold on, which is what uh, uh, distributors do with uh, the product and how that happens, whether it's through stores or online. so in the U.S., there's there's this uh, a very different dynamic, and that also plays out with investors. If you're investing in a U.S. company that's going overseas or in a in a in a company that is uh, international in scope, be aware of the different cultures. Many companies have tried to go into China because it's a billion people, a huge market, but. Uh, American brands don't play well over there unless your name is Starbucks or uh, uh, KFC or something like that. And and, and Amazon isn't down in South America very much. Uh, that's Mercado Libre's uh, turf. So be careful in, in, in realizing that there's risk for uh, going overseas. Yeah, I would say with Europe in particular, uh, European regulators are much more trigger-happy, I think, than regulators here in the U.S. Like we saw this summer, Google got levied with a 2.7 billion dollar fine uh, for supposedly, you know, some antitrust um, behavior, some monopolistic behavior. And really, when you look at the details of that case, is like Google was promoting some products through their, their own shopping app rather than uh, directing people to other shopping comparison websites. It's like really that's that's what you're going to find Google three billion dollars for, but uh, it just shows that especially if you're these big tech giants where you don't necessarily have a lot of upfront capital to invest to expand into these markets, and you can expand very quickly and have a wide reach. Um, Europe uh, they they, they want to protect their own turf, and they've shown this year. I, I think this move um, just reiterates that they're willing to to flex that regulatory muscle more more than we've seen in the U.S. And guys, let's talk about an American company, David. Buster's having a very, very good day on Wednesday, hitting a three-month high on better-than-expected earnings. David, um, the entertainment company here, also announcing plans to open some smaller locations. Yeah, well, taking a step back to last quarter, the company had raised guidance for revenue and earnings growth 
for the rest of the year. And that, but they had also lowered their same store sales guidance. So they're essentially saying our growth is going to come from opening new stores. And uh, I mean, the the numbers this quarter were, were decent. Revenue was up a little over nine percent. Earnings up 13%, but same store sales actually dropped 1.3%. So less people going into the stores. The the amusements or the games uh, part of the of the stores continued to really drive the growth. The same store sales for those amusements were up 1.1%, but food and beverage was down 4.2%. So on on one hand, you can get discouraged by that, but I think that actually is one of the um, the nice things about this Dave and Buster's model is that they do have a diversified revenue stream. They they uh, generate more sales from alcohol compared to most restaurants on average. They do have that food and sports bar component that I think helps bring people into the stores if they want to watch the game. Then you have the amusements, which is just a very high margin way to engage people really of all ages in a very addictive and <laughs> high margin way. They also did actually lower guidance for the rest of the year just a bit, but I, I think the the reason the stock is up today is probably um, excitement over management being optimistic about ongoing uh, store expansion. Right now, they're over at over a little over a hundred stores. They're planning to open two hundred or more in North America, and going with a smaller format store, uh, which will be between fifteen and twenty thousand square feet compared to twenty-five to forty-five thousand square feet for their stores up to this point. That'll help them enter into some smaller towns and cities potentially. So maybe allow them to open more stores than. Initially, investors had initially anticipated. Uh, I do like that it's a diversified concept and it's really focused on experiences, which I think when you're getting people into brick and mortar stores, it really needs to be based on some sort of experience. Yeah. And I think Dave and Buster's plays into that more than most. Uh, more than most restaurants. The main thing I, that I worry about as an investor, I mean, the valuation is still reasonable. I think the PE multiple is 21 or 22 now, and the stock has recovered over the past couple months. The, the main thing I worry about, uh, the, the company went public a few years ago with a substantial amount of debt. They are generating positive free cash flow now, but if we were to enter a downturn, which will happen at some point, we'll enter another recession. I'm not sure how how the company will will fare when um, you know cash production goes down and they have these interest payments they have to cover. So that'll be the main thing I watch. And that ties into something you were saying a little earlier, David. Is um, how do they differentiate themselves so they can survive? And I like the the game concept. I mean, a sports bar is a sports bar. I mean, this has been what's uh, been troubling Buffalo Buffalo Wild Wings yep. recently. So how do you differentiate yourself? I like with the games. That's one way. Uh, with there's several different ways, but uh, being just a sports bar is not the not the key to success. Oh yeah. And guys, before we continue, I want to say thanks to Casper. If it's been a while since you've bought a mattress, you should check out Casper. Their mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams, so your mattress has just the right sink and just the right bounce, and they make buying a mattress easy. You order online, it's delivered to your door in a compact box. There's free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. And there's a risk-free 100-day trial. How easy is that, guys? That is awesome. And guys, considering we spend one-third of our lives on a mattress, yes, one-third, it's so important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing. That's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out. Some of our colleagues have bought Casper mattresses, as well as some of our listeners, and they really love the mattress. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. 
That's $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and using promo code fool at checkout. Okay, guys, our final story. I'm calling this Have You No Shame, <laughs> Toys R Us. <laughs> On Tuesday, a judge approved a Toys R Us plan to spur holiday shopping. So far, so good, right? Right. Well, the plan will pay Toys R Us executives up to $21 million in bonuses. David, the argument that seemed to have won the day was that those bonuses will incentivize executives to boost sales during the holiday season. Now, call me crazy, <laughs> but it seems like the fact that Toys R Us is in bankruptcy should be incentive enough what is going on here? Yeah, you would think not going out of business is enough reason to get out of bed in the morning, and you don't need $21 million to incentivize you well, you're to do not, that. you're not these executives. That's right. No, I don't have the cushy executive these job. These impoverished executives. Gosh. Yeah. No, and I got... I, I, I mean, th this is just unbelievable. The more I read into this, so the deal—the the deal with this bonus is uh, you have 17 eligible executives who would split 21 million dollars in bonus if EBITDA—that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization—reaches 641 million dollars for this fiscal year, which ends uh, Jan at, at the end of January. And so you, through the holiday season. And if you don't make that, they, they have a fallback plan: 14 million dollars. Right. EBITDA is 550 million. Well, and the thing here, so so their their target, which you would think is a stretch goal, is six hundred forty one million dollars. <laughs> but in the four quarters ending July 29th, twenty seventeen, so ending this summer, EBITDA was six hundred ninety six million, so fifty million dollars above their stretch goal for this fiscal so year. So it's doable. And, and, it's doable. But and, the thing is, their their lawyer says this target will be incredibly hard to achieve. And I'm like, how full of it oh my are you? Gosh. To, to consider this a stretch goal. And then another thing with EBITDA, you're excluding the interest expense, which is the reason Toys R Us is going <laughs> bankrupt. So as, as a, a financial metric or performance metric to uh, be shooting for, excluding interest expense, which is a reason the company is in, in trouble, uh, interest its expense over the past four quarters was $461 million, almost half a billion dollars. Uh, there's just so much wrong with this, and the fact that it isn't actually a stretch goal, and this is probably going to be easily attainable because 40% of Toys R Us's revenue is generated in the holiday quarter. And if so you're working at Toys R Us, I mean, you're on the front lines there working for maybe minimum wage. Jim, how are you feeling about this? I'd, I'd quit, frankly. I mean, a, a bankrupt, uh, a company that's in bankruptcy with, with a a years-long turnaround plan. It's going to have to be approved by the judge and all the creditors and all that. I'd seriously think about leaving because, especially after this story hits the hits the company news of grapevine. I mean, okay, incentivize people to do something that benefits the company. That is exactly what companies should be doing. Except this one, as David's pointing out, is so wrong on so many levels. I mean, these guys are well paid already. Uh, the U.S. trustee and its arguments against this uh, pointed out that five of the, those potential uh, of those 17 recipients split $8.2 million in bonuses the week before the company went bankrupt. <laughs> Or declare bankruptcy. So, and the CEO David Brandon has other perks like aircraft use and limousine use. And meanwhile, the, as the minimum wage employees are getting there on their bus or in the, uh, they're certainly not driving around in limousines. And no so, aircraft. And no aircraft. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so, how about using that money? I mean, if the money's there, and apparently it is, if the money's there, use that to motivate the uh, the employees to drive sales. I mean, one example: uh, give a thousand dollar bonus to each employee who meets a sales target, or give a thousand dollar bonus to the two highest performing employees in in, in 
in each store, along with a manager for meeting certain targets. Those clerks, those minimum wage clerks, are going are on the front lines interacting with customers, and they are the ones doing the sales, not the CEO, not the CFO, not the CEO, and, and all those senior executives. They're back in uh, the headquarters sitting in their leather chairs. And when I read about incentives, I am so naturally skeptical because it seems like, you know, more often than not, we end up measuring the wrong thing, we end up incentivizing the wrong thing. So as an investor, what type of in- incentives work and what type of incentives don't work? When you're looking at a company, what do you what do you want to see and what do you not want to see? What I want to see is an incentive that is long-term, say 3 years uh, either in is discrete periods or a rolling three-year term, so you don't earn it until three years have gone by, and you're looking at three years worth of data, and over something that the 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 executive actually has control over as part of their job, rather than something like EPS, earnings per share, or the share price. If the share price reaches this target, you'll get an extra five million dollars. Well, that way leads to Enron. So, which is bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought I thought the word Enron by itself was sufficient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would hope. No, I, I agree with Jim. I think the the long for executives anyway. The the longer term, the incentives. If you're rewarding them with restricted stock that vests over a period of three to five years, rather than just you know, just giving options out stock options out as a you know blanket compensation tool. But if you have it on a restricted uh, basis that vests over a long-term period, I think that's effective. If it's tied to financial metrics like free cash flow, which actually help drive the underlying long-term value of the business, rather than something like earnings per share, which can be or juiced, even, or, or even worse, adjusted earnings per share. Right, so numbers that can be juiced in different ways, either by stock buybacks or making an acquisition and you know bumping up some of these numbers uh, artificially in the short term, which might not actually be all that healthy for the business uh, over the long term. So I think. Longer-term incentives focused on the underlying value of the business is what we like to see. I also like to see companies that are incentivizing people further down the ranks, not just the C-suite and not just the senior management, uh, all the executive vice presidents, all that, but down to the middle-level managers and down into the people who actually do the work that the company is uh, selling. David, Jim, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Matt. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow. Well, my trees covered in whiskey. Hell, stockings filled with beer. Said I can't remember what she brought me last year. I think it's only fair you bring me a triple dose. All I want for Christmas, Johnny Cash, Joe Schmuck, the
Son of the 